0: The sermon text for this morning is uh, John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. John chapter 3, verses 1 through 15. As we continue in our series through the Gospel of John. Begin reading at verse 1. There was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, so it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit." Nicodemus said to him, How can these things be? And Jesus answered him, Are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Truly, truly, I say to you, we speak of what we know and bear witness to what we have seen, but you do not receive our testimony. If I have told you earthly things and you do not believe, How can you believe if I tell you heavenly things? No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, you may have noticed in our text there is a little irony in verse 10 where Jesus, uh, during this deep conversation with Nicodemus, asks him, are you the teacher of Israel, and yet you do not understand these things? Well, implied in Jesus' question is that Nicodemus should have known what uh, Jesus was explaining. And so Jesus, the teacher, the one who knows all things, we see in our text, he sets about helping Nicodemus to understand. And what does Jesus teach Nicodemus this, uh, in this text? And what does he teach us this morning? First, I want us to notice in our text that we learn from the Lord Jesus that it is necessary to be born again. It is necessary to be born again. We see in verse 1 that there was a man of the Pharisees, he's identified, who was named. Nicodemus, and he's uh, identified also as a ruler of the Jews. He came by night perhaps because he didn't want to be publicly associated with Jesus. And he said, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher come from God. Now that might seem like a a compliment, but it really wasn't. Uh, By saying we, Nicodemus was revealing that He was speaking on behalf of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling council. And he was revealing that he believed that Jesus was just a teacher. Sent from God, yes, but certainly not the Son of God. So Nicodemus revealed that he knew there was something interesting about Jesus, something distinct about him, but Nicodemus didn't know the full reality of who Jesus really was. And this is, as we look at our text this morning, this is the first time that this word Pharisees appears in the Gospel of John. And actually, you know, if you read the Old Testament from Genesis to Malachi, you won't find any mention of the Pharisees until you get to the Gospels. I wonder if you've ever asked yourself, where then did the Pharisees come from? They're not in the Old Testament, and then all of a sudden when You begin reading the Gospels, it seems that they are everywhere, and they're talking to Jesus, and they're interacting with the people. where did the Pharisees come from? Well, in uh, 586 B.C., the southern kingdom of Judah was captured, and the temple was destroyed, and many were taken into captivity. Many of the Jews were taken into exile. And when the temple was destroyed, it led to what we might call the decentralization of Judaism. Judaism had been concentrated in Israel. It had been concentrated around Jerusalem, around the temple. But once that was destroyed and, and the Jews were scattered, both the northern and the southern kingdoms, it led to the decentralization of Judaism. And no longer was the temple the focus of worship, but it began to be synagogues during the intertestamental period that became the places of worship for many of the Jews. And as a result, during that intertestamental period between the Old and the New Testament, that 400 years, many factions arose within Judaism. Uh, some of the more familiar ones that we know are the Sadducees, right? uh, the Zealots, the Essenes. These are all familiar. Uh, names that we know from the New Testament, and, and also the Pharisees. They were part of this faction that arose during that time. And so we read in John that Nicodemus was a Pharisee. He was a member of one of these groups or factions within Judaism. And the Pharisees lived primarily in Jerusalem, and they mostly attempted to shape the religious life of the ordinary Jew through the dissemination of their traditions and laws that they added to God's word. All that to say is they were very much focused on obeying the law of God. Not just the law written in what we call the Old Testament, but also the laws that they themselves had added to God's word. The laws that the Lord Jesus referred to as the traditions of men. These Pharisees were very scrupulous to maintain a righteous standing before God by observing these laws very, very carefully. Consider the Apostle Paul. If you recall, he said that as a Pharisee, he was blameless as to the law in Philippians chapter 3, verse 6. This Paul's way of saying, you know, when I was a Pharisee, I observed the law very carefully. I was blameless in regard to it. And even we read in the Gospels that while many Jews tithed, the Pharisees even tithed uh, their garden herbs. They went above and beyond what God required in tithing. And while others fasted in Israel, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. It was more than what was required. The Pharisees kept purity at meals to the point of straining out a gnat, says the Lord Jesus. They were so careful in their dietary observances. They avoided even sharing a table with sinners or tax collectors because they didn't want to be defiled by them. And this is all because the Pharisees believed that by their outward obedience to the law and to the traditions that had arisen during that intertestamental period, they believed that they would ultimately be rewarded with eternal life. They believed that they were earning their right standing before God by their obedience. And everyone else believed that about them too. They were very well respected in the Jewish community. They were held in high honor by others. Ultimately, we know that the Pharisees had a works righteousness understanding of salvation. They believed that they could earn a right standing before God by their obedience and their good works. And this is why when we understand what the Pharisees believed about salvation, Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus is so shocking because Jesus says to Nicodemus, I know you believe you're blameless and righteous, but you're not. You, Nicodemus, the Pharisee, you, like everyone else, you also need to be born again. You also need to repent and believe the gospel. You also need to trust in a righteousness that's not your own, that you can earn or merit, but one that comes through me by faith. In verse 3, we see that Jesus answered him very directly, truly, truly. This is Jesus' way of emphasizing his point. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What Jesus' is teaching there to Nicodemus and to us is that because we are born dead in our sins, as we uh, saw according to Ephesians chapter 2, we need to be given life, spiritual life, by God. The guilt of Adam's sin and the sins that we commit on a daily basis serve as judgments against us. This means that in and of ourselves, we, we cannot do anything to please God. We need God to do something to us. We need God to do something in us in order to begin to live spiritually, to live before his face righteously. We need him to give us spiritual life. The Bible very clearly teaches throughout that you and I cannot change ourselves Just like a dead person cannot bring himself to life, God has to do it. And what he does is he gives us new life, a a new spiritual birth. The phrase that Jesus uses here in verse 3, born again, it can be translated also born from above. Meaning that this new birth comes from God and it doesn't come from us. It doesn't come from our own power. Just as we might think of the analogy of conception and birth, right, which is the start of physical life. Uh, the same way the work of regeneration brings spiritual life. And this is what the Apostle Paul, the former Pharisee, realized only after his conversion as he rejoiced when he says that he would be found by God on Judgment Day, not having a righteousness of his own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ. Paul realizing that he needed the righteousness that comes from God, the righteousness that comes to those who are born again by the power of the Spirit. So Jesus very clearly teaching that the new birth is required, which leads us to our second point. He says, "The new birth is not just required, but it is the sovereign work of the Holy Spirit." We read in verse four that Nicodemus said to him, "How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? You see, Nicodemus is taking the Lord Jesus very literally. doesn't understand what Jesus is teaching spiritually. Uh, And Actually, this is a a typical pattern throughout the Gospel of John, uh, a very uh, common teaching method that Jesus uses. Um, As we'll see, throughout the Gospel, Jesus sometimes says something very controversial or strange or or new. And then people uh, reply with questions that show their misunderstanding and confusion about what he's teaching. And then Uh, Jesus clarifies the point by explaining the spiritual truth behind uh, what he's saying. You see this, for example, in in the parables that often leave people confused. And then Jesus says, well, let me explain what I'm teaching you. Um, There's also the example of the Samaritan woman at the well, as we'll see in John chapter 4, where Jesus is talking to her about living water. and, And she gets so hung up on the idea of water that she doesn't understand the spiritual aspect of what Jesus' is teaching. And in John chapter 8, Jesus will talk, as we'll see, to the uh, Jewish religious leaders, and he says, before Abraham was, I am. And they're trying to figure out, well, how old are you? You look, you don't look a day over 30. How, how is it that, that, or over 50, how is it that you were before Abraham? And then Jesus has to correct their understanding and show the spiritual reality of it. It's the same idea in this passage. Nicodemus' reply shows the distance in understanding between Jesus and the religious leaders. The religious leaders who should have been the teachers of Israel, leading them in truth. Nicodemus' misunderstanding shows that they did not understand the things of God. And so we see in verses 5 through 8, Jesus' answer So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, that phrase, born of water and Spirit, is a reference back to Ezekiel chapter 36, beginning of verse 25. It's our second reading this morning. And as we noted in that reading, uh, God promises Israel that there will come a time where he will cleanse his people of their sins. And it won't just be an outward washing with water, he will cleanse them within. He will cleanse their hearts by his Spirit. We read this promise in Ezekiel 36, beginning of verse 25. I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. And from all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Now that word phrase, water and spirit, there in Ezekiel, and Jesus applying it in his discussion with Nicodemus, it's a picture, ultimately, of how our sins are washed away, how You and I are cleansed. That's the same picture that we have in in baptism. In baptism, which the outward washing with water points to what God is doing inwardly by the regenerating power of his Holy Spirit and the cleansing blood of Christ. Now that regeneration does not take place at the moment of baptism, but The water is a sign. It's a picture of what God ultimately will do and does in his sovereign timing in a believer's life by removing the stain of sin. And I believe that at this point, uh, when Nicodemus heard Jesus say the word water, that he began thinking, oh, so I just need to wash more. Remember that the Pharisees were all about observing the law. They were all about going above and beyond what was expected. And and part of their observance, we know, included ceremonial washings. They would wash their hands. They would wash their utensils. They would wash the furniture in their homes. They were washing all of the time. And so Nicodemus might have been thinking, well, then I'll double down on my washing. I'll scrub more, right? I'll use more water. I'll wash more often. I can do this. I can, I can earn this. No problem. Until Jesus said there in verse 8, Nicodemus, the wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. What is Jesus teaching Nicodemus there? That in the same way that we cannot control the wind, we also cannot control God's sovereign work in salvation. And Jesus here uses the example of the wind because Nicodemus, who, who spoke Hebrew, he knew that the word for wind in Hebrew is the same as the word for spirit, ruach. He says, as... The wind is free and sovereign, so also is the Spirit of God in salvation. Nicodemus, religion cannot manipulate God, and salvation cannot be earned through mere obedience to the law. And loved ones, this is one of the major differences between Christianity and the world's religions. The world's religions are man centered. You know, on the whole, they teach that. It's in our power to change. That we have the ability, apart from God, uh, to save ourselves. But we see here and throughout the New Testament that and throughout the scriptures that God emphasizes his sovereignty in our salvation. It's God-centered, not man-centered. You and I, we didn't give birth to ourselves. We had nothing to do with our physical birth. And And Jesus is teaching here that it's the same with the new birth. It's a gift of God. In this case, it's a gift of God, the Holy Spirit. But how then can we know? How can we know that we are born again? Jesus teaches Nicodemus and us that the new life is thirdly in our outline, exhibited by our faith and good works. Notice again verse 8. The wind blows where it wishes, And you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. So it is with everyone who is born of the Spirit. Now, looking again at verse 8, you and I are very familiar with the effects of wind, especially living in Southern California. When those Santa Ana winds pick up, we can immediately tell by the way that the air is drier. Some of us might sneeze a lot more on those days. We see the effects of the wind as palm trees are, are blown around um, leaves and branches all over the sidewalks and the roads. And we also see the effects because sometimes they cause or spread fires, and so we see the smoke in the air being blown about. See, though the wind is invisible, we very clearly see its effects. And Jesus says that in the same way, The new birth is spiritual, so we can't see it, but we can observe its effects. See, loved ones, what God does in the new birth is that he renews us entirely, and so therefore the effects are very clear. It's not just that 75% of our being is sinful when we are born, and so God only needs to change 75% of us. No, the entire... The entirety of our being has been affected by sin. So when God makes us new creations through the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit, Jesus says, and the Bible teaches, that we can see the effects of that change. We know what it means to be born in sin, don't we? The Bible teaches that because of our sinfulness, our minds are darkened. Our hearts are cold toward God. Our wills seek sin and not holiness. And what the Holy Spirit does in the new birth is he renews us completely, entirely. He renews our reason. He renews our minds. He enlightens our minds spiritually and savingly to understand the things of God. And in regeneration, he also renews our emotions, our hearts. He takes away the heart of stone and he gives us a heart of flesh so that not only can we understand the things of God, but now we can love God and love the things of God and love the people that uh, God surrounds us with. And the Spirit also renews our wills. And by his almighty power, he determines us toward that which is good. And he effectually draws us to Jesus Christ. He renews our minds, our hearts, and our wills. Our wills, so that we are now able to do what God has called us to do. Not perfectly, but to a greater degree and with a greater affection than we had before. And all this reveals itself in a changed life, a renewed life, a life that is characterized by true faith in Christ. A faith that receives and rests in the saving work of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's revealed in a life that is characterized by spiritual fruit and by evidences of true faith. Again, it's not perfection, it's not sinlessness, but it is evidenced by a genuine desire to please God. When I want to ask you this morning do you, do you long to worship? the Lord? And I mean not just to come to worship to check off a box done and I'm good for the week but do you genuinely long to worship the Lord to sing his praises? Uh, do Do you seek to learn about God through his word and through the preaching of it? Do you genuinely want to know about the Lord not just for information but just like you would want to know your spouse better because you love them do you have that kind of longing to know the Lord? Do you also long to be with God's children, with fellow believers in fellowship and in communion together? Do you want to please the Lord in the ways that you think about him and what you say and in, in what you do? Loved ones, all of these and many other such things are fruits and evidences of true faith, of, of regeneration, that is invisible because it is spiritual, but that is manifested in our lives through many evidences. See, faith and good works are not the effects of regeneration, but they sh- do show that we have been born of God. 1 John chapter 3, verse 9 says, No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God of God. The Apostle John speaking here of living in unrepentant, hard-hearted sin. He said it's he says it's impossible for someone to live that way if he has been born of God. And in 1 John chapter 4 verse 7, we read, "Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God." See, even the apostle Paul very clearly explains that there is a fruit and evidence of the Spirit that is manifested in the true believer's life, and he summarizes this in Galatians chapter five, beginning in verse twenty-three, when he says, "The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These are the fruit." And so when people's lives are changed from disobeying God to obeying God, we can know, of course, though not infallibly, that the Spirit has been at work giving new birth, new life. We actually see this somewhat in Nicodemus' life. Um, The final mention of Nicodemus in the Bible is in John chapter 19 after Jesus' crucifixion. We find him helping Joseph of Arimathea in Jesus' burial. Uh, Joseph of Arimathea is described in John as a rich man, as a member of the council, the Jewish leadership. And he's also described in John chapter 19 as a disciple of Jesus, albeit a secret one, because he was afraid of the Jews. So Joseph of Arimathea asked Pilate for the body of Jesus. And we read in that moment that Nicodemus brought 75 pounds of spices for use in preparing the body for burial and then assisted Joseph in wrapping the body and placing it in the tomb. Now, the sheer amount of burial spices would seem to indicate that Nicodemus was a rich man and that he had great respect for Jesus. The Bible doesn't say that Nicodemus was converted, but it does reveal that toward the end of Jesus' ministry, he was not ashamed to be associated with Jesus. Lastly, we learn in our passage this morning that regeneration or the new birth is possible because of Christ's death. Jesus explains to Nicodemus that he knows these things, these spiritual realities, not because uh, he, Jesus, ascended, Uh, not because he ascended into heaven. Uh, Jesus is saying, it's not like I'm a regular man who just saw a vision of these things and so I know them. But he says, but because I descended from heaven. He's revealing the fact that he was in glory with the Father. And so when he speaks now, he speaks with authority, with truth. So he says, verses 13 through 15, uh, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. Now, the serpent in the wilderness refers to Numbers chapter 21, It's a story about the fact that during the Israelites' wilderness wandering, some of them were bitten by poisonous snakes as a, judgment against them for their unbelief and their grumbling. And Moses, he prayed for mercy from the Lord, and and God provided a bronze serpent, which the Israelites were to look up to for healing. And Jesus is teaching Nicodemus that the bronze serpent was a type, it was a foreshadow of the cross. Jesus says that the Son of Man must be lifted up. This is a double meaning. Right? The cross of Calvary and those who look up to him will be spiritually healed. Jesus is pointing to the fact that he will be lifted up on the cross so that all those who look to him in faith, trusting that he has taken their sins, they will be healed of their sins. And Jesus here is also referring to his exaltation and glory for He will be lifted up in his ascension. But notice that Jesus says to Nicodemus that the Son of Man must be lifted up. Jesus is so sure about the fact that he will accomplish the salvation for his people. It's the must of divine purpose, of divine decree. This will happen. I will be lifted up. And all those who look to me in faith shall be saved. Loved ones, Jesus is teaching Nicodemus and us that God's salvation is received by trusting in him as the crucified Savior. He is the one who descended from heaven in order to lift lift us up to heaven. He was lifted up in shame in order that our shame might be taken away. He is the one who suffered the curse of sin in order that you and I might, might receive the blessing of God, He was raised and he ascended into glory and the Bible says that where he is we soon will be also. Friends, do you believe this? Do you trust in him? I assure you today, based on the truth of God's word and the very words of our Lord Jesus, that whoever believes in Jesus will have eternal life. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, we thank you for the grace of regeneration uh, that we have been born from above. Thank you for loving us so much that even while we were dead because of our sins, uh, you gave us life. You chose us, purchased us, washed and clothed us even while we were vile and polluted and without merit. Thank you, O Lord, for changing our hearts so that now we love Christ more than sin. Thank you for changing our minds so that we now have our minds set on the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at your right hand. And thank you for changing our wills so that even while we struggle with sin, we no longer are under its dominion and power. It is no longer our master. What Wondrous grace, O Lord. Cause us, we pray, when we doubt and we experience trouble, to remember your wonderful works. And to remember not just your work in creation, but especially your work in our salvation, that in Christ you have been gracious and merciful to us. All praise and all glory be to you, O God. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.